0: Good morning, everybody. Again, uh, we are reading 2 Corinthians, and that is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth because his relationship with them uh, had taken a pretty uh, bad hit. And so he wrote to them to foster and deepen reconciliation with them. He wrote to them to address lingering and painful questions about his leadership. And almost all of those themes came out in the passage that we read last week, and they carry over into the part of the letter that we're going to read this morning, and they carry over with uh, some resolution. So I'm going to read the back half of 2 Corinthians 7 for us, verses 10 through 16. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, as always, that you'd use this word uh, that we have read and that we have heard together um, to point us to the grace and love you have shown us in Jesus, the word who bears our flesh. Father, meet every one of us here this morning, wherever we are, those of us who are ready to hear from you and those of us who aren't, those of us uh, who have faith and those of us who don't and those of us who aren't sure. Father, meet us and show us Jesus' goodness and grace and change us by it. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, if I I really like something, you know, like uh, an album or a restaurant or a book or a movie or something. If I really like something, I can get also very enthusiastic about it. Uh, You can ask my poor kids who are often subjected to the same album, sometimes the same song, for weeks on end while I'm driving them around in the car or doing the dishes or something. I mean, every once in a while, something like that will come along, something I like and something I feel enthusiastic about, and when it does, I almost always feel two strong impulses. On the one hand, uh, I want to share it with everybody, and I think that's a, a pretty normal human reaction. Humans create meaning together, we create identity together, and so we share the things that we like with each other. Um, but on the other hand, when someone takes me up on that thing, you know, when they say, okay, I'll, I'll read the book or I'll go to the restaurant or I'll uh, watch the show that you like, there's this other impulse that kicks in. And that impulse is something like fear. I always get really messed up and I think to myself, what if they don't like it? <laughs> you know, what will that say about me? What will that say about my relationship with that person? Do I have bad taste? Am I the worst person in the world? You know, it escalates very quickly. And I think that's a pretty normal human reaction, too. The more you like a thing, the more you identify with it, the more deeply you feel that feeling of hesitation. Well, maybe you picked up on it as we read this together, but both of those impulses uh, were at play for the Apostle Paul in that passage that we just read. In that passage, he's talking about how happy he was when Titus showed up with the good news from the Corinthian church. And in verse 14, he writes, Whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. Before Paul sent Titus to Corinth, he hyped up the church to them. We don't know exactly what it was that he said about those folks at Corinth, um, but he boasted about them. He clearly loved them. But of course, after Titus left, Paul wondered if Titus would love them like he did. Paul wondered if Titus would see any of the same things in them that he saw in them. Now we talked last week about that anxious wait that Paul had while he was waiting for Titus to come back, the feelings that he had of anxiety, the fear that he had within. And you can hear the relief in these words and almost feel the relief through this whole chapter. We're comforted, Paul says. I rejoice, Paul says. I'm overflowing with joy. I have complete confidence in you. It could have gone the other way, and it didn't go the other way. And that's really what I want us to think about this morning. Why didn't it go bad? Well, I think that it didn't go bad because they all walked out as best they could, the kind of relational commitments that are shaped and fueled by following Jesus. In this relational conflict, they walked in line with the good news of Jesus as best as they could. And it took risk, and it took courage and vulnerability and honesty. All of that fueled by the tenacious belief that God meets people like them and he meets people like us with mercy and grace and healing even when we are in conflict. And that's what I think we have to learn from this part of the letter. So we spent a couple minutes last week remembering all that had taken place between Paul and this church and we do that because knowing what happened helps us make sense out of what we're reading. I want to give you the thumbnail again Paul had started this church in Corinth. He had lived with those people there for a year and a half. And sometime after he left, news came back to him that there was trouble. There were folks in that church who were actively trying to undercut his uh, authority as their father in the faith. They were trying to undercut his identity as a leader. They were saying that, that his whole way of life disqualified him as a leader. And so, Paul, when he heard that, dropped what he was doing, and he made an emergency visit to Corinth, and that that visit went horribly. He was personally attacked, and none of his friends there defended him. And so, Paul was hurt, and he left quickly. And so, you know how it goes when stuff like that happens, especially if you're one of those people who aren't able to think really fast on your feet. You know how it goes. After you leave, you think of all the stuff that you you wanted to say, all the stuff that you should have said in that moment if you hadn't felt so shaken and, and so off guard. Paul was like that. He says a bunch of things in his letters that make it very clear that he is much better at setting his thoughts down on paper than he is about arguing in the heat of the moment with somebody. And so after he left in that pain, he wrote them a letter. It's a letter he described in chapter two as one that he penned with anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, he said, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. We don't have that letter, but I don't doubt that it was an incredibly hard-hitting, clear confrontation. It must have been very, very difficult to read. And Paul was worried about sending it. As a matter of fact, last week we saw that Paul regretted sending it. A guy named Titus took it to them, and when he and Paul finally met up, months later he came back with good news. The letter had landed well. Paul, they want to be reconciled to you. Paul, they can't wait to see you again. And Paul's relief at this news is what we just have been reading about the last two weeks. And this brings us to the first of those relational commitments that are shaped by following Jesus. It's simple, and it's obvious, but it is very hard to do, and even harder for people like us to do well. Paul said something. He wrote the letter, and he wrote that letter even though he knew it would cost him something to do it even though he knew that it might go bad. I mean, I'm sure he struggled with mixed motives because Paul was a fallible human being, just like every one of us here this morning are fallible human beings. I mean, the easiest thing for him to do would have been to not write the letter at all, to not address it at all. Maybe he never even needed to go to Corinth again in his life. The next easiest thing after that would have been to write a letter that just contained one mean shot after another, after another, to make them feel bad so he felt better. But instead, he walked that tightrope. He walked that very thin line, and he wrote a letter of confrontation specifically crafted not to cause them pain, but instead to let them know of his abundant love for them. And church, I think that's always the first bar that we need to pass when people like us go to someone else who has caused us hurt or pain we need to ask this question, will they know that I love them when it's done? Will they know that my love for them is what brought me to them in the first place to have this conversation? And will they sense right from the start that I wanna be reconciled with them, that I want everything to be good with them and that I will be glad when we can start over with a clean slate these are the kind of questions we have to ask, they begin with our love. I know none of us can do it perfectly because only one of us has ever done it perfectly. Just read about Jesus' interactions with people in the Gospels. No one ever wondered if Jesus had compassion on them. No one, you know, no one ever wondered if he was ready to embrace them with mercy and grace. No one ever felt like he was just taking cheap shots at them. And he said some hard things to people. I always think about almost some of the first words that come out of his mouth in Mark's gospel. He says, repent and believe the good news. Repent, change everything because you're a wreck and believe this good news. And church, because of all of this good news, this good news that flows directly out of Jesus' life and teaching, out of his death, out of his resurrection, out of his ascension, this good news that he forgives people like us when we repent, this good news that he continually makes us new, this good news that he gives us his spirit working overtime in us to make us look more like him. Because of all of this good news, we have everything that we need to go to people who have wronged or hurt us with love we have all that we need to do it with love it'll be halting love it'll be imperfect love of course but that's infinitely better than all of the other possibilities and it's what we've been called to do if we follow jesus and it is uh, great to see an example of this working out well, like it does here in this letter, in this part of the letter. It birthed, as Paul calls it in verse 10, a godly grief that led to repentance, that led to salvation with with no regret at all, in contrast to what he calls a worldly grief that produces death. And in verse 11, Paul makes a list of seven words. I think it's no coincidence he chose seven, seven words that showed the shape of the Corinthians' repentance, things like eagerness and indignation and fear and earnestness and zeal. But in chapter 2, which we talked about back in September, we, we have a clear picture of what happened after they got that letter. After they got that letter, they confronted the guy who had attacked Paul. And there was some punishment meted out to him. And church, I think it's really, really telling what Paul said to them there. He said, turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That's what Paul told them. He said, I beg you, I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. The guy that hurt him, the guy that had wounded him, Paul says, I beg you, reaffirm your love for him, don't let him become excessively sorrowful. That is a high standard. And it is a beautiful standard. And it's the one that Jesus calls us to and it is the one that his grace enables us to uphold. If you or I need to walk into relational hurt, if you or I need to be in the position where we say something, then by God's grace, let us do it bathed in the kind of love that we have been loved with first. And, you know, what if we're on the receiving end of that? What if we are the ones who have to come face to face with some hurt or some pain that we have caused? And this leads us back I think to those two categories Paul used worldly grief and godly grief. I mean you may have noticed this but last week and this week the gospel lessons that we heard read they they were about the apostle Peter. Last week we read about Peter denying that he ever knew Jesus. And when he realized what he had done the effect was immediate. Peter went out and he wept bitterly. But this morning This morning, that story we heard was about his restoration, about being restored to Jesus and restored to his life in this world (laughs) in that beautiful post-breakfast walk with Jesus on the beach. Lord, he says, Lord, come on, man, you know I love you. And Jesus takes him way back to the very beginning, to probably the first words He ever heard Jesus say to him okay follow me let's go it's beautiful but there was another disciple on the night that Jesus was arrested with a very different story Judas had betrayed Jesus for money and when he saw Jesus finally condemned by the authorities He changed his mind, and he returned the money, and in grief, he hanged himself. Judas felt sadness, and he felt grief, just like Peter did, but from there, he walked down a very different road than the one that Peter did. And church, I don't know why. I don't know why they walked very different roads in their grief, because we're not told why. But they are pictures of two very different roads that our own sorrow over causing hurt in someone else's life can take. And I can tell you that personally, when I'm confronted with hurt that I have caused, my my reflex is to deny it or to make it seem smaller or to distract myself from it. And honestly, from, from the best way I can look at it, from a human way of looking at things, my response to that reflex, in other words, what I do next, is almost always directly related to my apprehension and rest and how much I am loved by Jesus. What I do when I am confronted by hurt is almost always directly related to how much I actually believe that I am loved. I mean, if it's up to me to be righteous, if it's up to me to carry on the life of faith all by myself, then of course I'm gonna scramble because I can't afford to be wrong. Not in my own eyes, not in the eyes of others, not in the eyes of God, because there's too much at stake. So it has to be someone else's fault or they have to have misunderstood what I did. And if none of that works, church, I'll tell you, I have a long list of things I can do or things I can enjoy that will distract me from it. And that leads to nowhere good And it leads there fast. Because what I'm really feeling in those moments is regret. Regret that I got called out. Regret that I lost face. Regret that I feel pain. Regret that reconciliation is going to cost me because love always does. The church father Chrysostom said that that kind of regret is always a prelude to greater harm. And maybe what I'm describing about my own experience sounds familiar to you and your experience. I would think that maybe it does. But what if I was loved fully and completely and perfectly? And what if that love that I felt fully and perfectly and completely wasn't predicated on me keeping my nose clean? And what if it wasn't dependent on me looking great to everybody? What if the thing that we sang, the very first thing this morning, the first words that all of us sang this morning out of our lips, what if that is really true? Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, better, you'll never come at all. Jesus, ready, stands to save you full of pity and love and power. What if that was true? Well, if that stuff was true, then it would make for me all of the space that I need to open my hands and to admit I was wrong. It would make all of the space that anybody needs, that I need to get off that dark road of worldly regret, prelude to who knows to what nightmares and get back on the road of repentance, which will lead me squarely back into the heart of the true story of the world. God reconciling all things to himself in Jesus. God making peace by the blood of his cross. And church, you know it's all true. It's all true. In Jesus, by faith, we are loved perfectly, and we are loved fully, and we are loved completely. It is absolutely true, full stop. So how do we apprehend this love? How do people like us grow in our apprehension of it? How can people like us rest in it? Well, I'm here to tell you there is no secret to it, and there's no shortcut to it either. We apprehend the deep love and mercy of Jesus through the means of grace, through his word, through his sacraments, and through prayer. Worship together that is ordered around the good news, a life of growing and learning and serving together that is ordered around the good news, the means of grace, church, are how we apprehend and how we rest in Jesus' love. And if that is our life, if that is the way that we are moving, then yes, our sin will hurt. But it will cause a godly grief, and it will lead us back through repentance to the shepherd of the sheep. And he will, in turn, lead us back to one another. Frederica Matthews Green says it like this. She says, repentance is the doorway to the spiritual life, the only way to begin. It is also the path itself, the only way to continue. Only repentance is both brute honest enough and joyous enough to bring us all the way home. As the psalm writer said in our Old Testament lesson, after he had come face to face with pain and hurt that he had caused, let me hear of joy and gladness. (laughs) Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And really, that's what the last half of chapter 7 is all about. It's a bunch of, of broken bones rejoicing in joy and gladness. It's Paul saying, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. He would find you just like I said. You guys are just like I thought you were. And it's Titus coming back with this incredible news. And it's Titus' own spirit being refreshed and being filled with affection for them. It's Paul just overloaded with happiness and relief. I rejoice. I have complete joy. I have complete confidence. Man, there is still more for them to deal with together, believe me. And some of it is rough. But right now, they are restored to each other. They are restored to each other. In that uncommon mutuality that is made possible for people like us by Jesus mutuality that heals wounds and that nourishes hope. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for an example of your unity and your peace and your grace working among a people to bring restoration and healing. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to be a people who play our own roles in that whenever we need to play our own role in that by saying something or by being the one who hears and that we would do it bathed in love and in humility, not because we can wake up in the morning and just think, I'm going to (laughs) love, and not because we can wake up in the morning and just think, I'm going to be open-handed and humble, but because that's how we've been loved. Father, would you help us to apprehend it more deeply through the means you have given us? Would you help us to rest in it so that through us, through a community that is committed to working through conflict in a way uh, that leads us together, that through us, you can love this broken world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.